Good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM. My name's Aaron Bastani. This week I'm joined by Simeon Brown. Hi, Simeon. How's it going? Channel 4's very own ingenue as we discuss digital displacement, gentrification and the future of housing in London. Um, I suppose by way of introduction, in the correspondence we had ahead of the show, you were keen to highlight maybe something of a distinction between displacement and gentrification. And so maybe we could orient, I guess, the first 10 minutes of the show around this distinction, because for you it's an important one, right? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, a lot of things that I've covered have been around housing in the past year and about gentrification and the privatisation of public space is something that I've seen in the areas that I grew up in and in the areas that, you know, I began to investigate. And I wanted to also look at areas where gentrification seemed to be happening at a at a rate where it was causing quite a bit of conflict, but also in areas where people seem to be working working on some developments. And I almost wanted to have a discussion about can we separate gentrification and displacement? Sometimes gentrification flourishes among displacement, an example being after the 2012 Olympics. One of my earliest memories of that is going to a house in Edmonton belonging to my friend, and there were just hundreds, or no, there were tens of black bags. And I was like, who do these black bags belong to? And she goes, they belong to my auntie. She just moved here from Hackney because she could no longer afford the rent. She lived her whole life in Hackney. Mm. So rents had risen so by, by so much that she had to move maybe two or three zones out of London to Edmonton from, from Hackney. And so that was one experience of gentrification. And, but then that was displacement. But I wanted to think, what about when can gentrification happen where displacement does not take place? And therefore, does this begin to lead us to a more positive example of gentrification? If we take gentrification as solely being the the change of an area towards middle class tastes, I know that conventionally the definition is about an area increasing middle class inhabitants at the expense of working class people. And so... I guess I was I guess I was really keen to think about well in the absence of displacement gentrification add positive to an area does it add things like greater choice on the high street does it create things like better leisure leisure facilities does it create things like more capital that benefits more people and so I guess I was keen to kind of either critique that or to think about places where there's an example of it being done properly now here's here's an example that maybe provides both pros and cons to, 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 to this point. Brixton. Now, Brixton, obviously, rents have gone up by, by huge amounts. And it's an area where when you speak to people, real Brixtonites, they say, you know, Brixton's been lost. Brixton no longer feels like a space for working class people, particularly a working class community that is made up largely of, you know, minorities of African, the Caribbeans, made up of, of Colombians and so forth. But actually, at the same time, there have been a lot of things that have been in place in Brixton, to my knowledge, that have tried to keep as much of the spaces for those communities as possible. Now, that doesn't mean that capital has not made them under under threat. It means then that there's another force in play, maybe where in other areas those those forces just do not exist at all. So an example might be the investment into the Black Cultural Archives, which is supposed to preserve the heritage of of Brixton's BME communities, but also wider afield. It comes down to the fact that my understanding is that 
although the village, which has become far more middle class in, in taste and rent had, had gone up, there were interventions to make sure that it was certainly more affordable to older people who had been selling, you know, yams and planting and, and cassifier and so forth for, 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 for years. Although, of course, that is constantly a battle. That is one of the things that we're just coming to see with gentrification and, and capital. It is always going to have an element of, of, of struggle to it. But it's just about, well, in which places do we actually see forces and things coming into place to, to kind of add critique and add balance? And which places do we not see? And so I guess uh, trying to see, can we, can, we, can we foresee a model of gentrification that doesn't have displacement? And I guess that was the conversation that, that I wanted to have. Okay. Because I mean, this, is a, this is an interesting and important point, right? Is that there are obviously multiple forms of gentrification. Um, and I think it's quite lazy. And this is another big thing we're going to talk about is... Um, the relationship between hipsters and cultural formations and gentrification. Because if you look at, for instance, what happened in Canary Wharf in the 1980s, very state-led, it was about the introduction of big finance, the banking industry, um, <laughs> the banking industry, complete decimation of working class uh, elements of South East London, the Isle of Dogs and so on, Canvey Island. That's clearly a very different kind of gentrification to what's uh, taking place at the moment in areas such as Hoxton, Shoreditch, Hackney. Uh, and to my mind, while people are very keen to highlight the presence of fixed, fixed bike you know, mechanics and uh, new coffee stands and cupcake shops, Actually, what you see in places like Hackney and Hoxton, these really you know, very thriving, gentrifying parts of North London, is old money, real old money. So we're not talking about somebody with a few uh, funny tattoos and a, and a, and a nice haircut, uh, but the kinds of people who have historically bought property to live in, let's not even talk about those who are buying property to speculate and to rent, etc., uh, who've, who've, who've tended to buy stuff in West London. So that's changed. I think that's something I really want to get to the bottom of. Your, your key point about different kinds of gentrification and is it possible to identify positive models? Uh, your example here being Brixton is an interesting one. I suppose a lot of listeners will be coming to this and they'll be very sceptical of what you're saying. Naturally. naturally. Of course, but the, the, the key point is that you're, you're embedding that within a kind of empirical an empirical basis is actually talking to the residents. So what I'm interested in is, is this. If you were talking to, let's say, 100 residents of Brixton, um, let's not say cross-class because the majority of the, the area has historically been working class, but let's say a decent representation, you know, a decent representation, a decent sample of the resident population. What's their view on what's happened to increases in rent? What's their view on what's happened to the essential composition of the high street? I mean, how do they emotionally deal with it and how do they sort of rationally deal with it, you know what I mean? Brixton is a place where I've done a lot of, of research. It's a place, it is a community that I'm not from, but where I have, I have based a lot of journalism around. And so naturally, people are not happy with the, the force of gentrification in the area. Mm. They're not happy with the rise in rents and, they, and, and they're not happy with the, with the trend of the people that I've spoken to who maybe have, have moved out. But... And there has and there has been some and there has been some displacement, but uh, for me, it was about looking at in other ways though there had been resistance mm -hmm. in what ways there had been interventions in market forces mm -hmm. to try and try to try and offset the force of gentrification to kind of preserve things for maybe working class and particularly black and black and multi ethnic working class communities, and so in Brixton, as opposed to maybe other spaces. Mm -hmm. 
there were things that, that I had seen. And so that seemed to have offered almost the beginning of a conversation where you could have gentrification without complete displacement. And I did mention that, of course, you're talking about, we're talking about offsetting various different types of, of forces. You've got the force of capital and talking about the forces of increased rents and therefore capital on the high street and therefore that changing. And therefore a lot of space is being lost. But, and that force is, in some areas has been quite overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But then when I, looked at, when I looked at Brixton, I looked at the way that some of those had been offset. It was, a, it, was in, it, was, it was interesting. And therefore, although most people in the area who I've spoken to and who I've done research for, I'm not being happy about yeah. it, it just seemed something a little bit different. And then I thought that maybe started a different conversation. So you're saying that, for instance, there was, as you put it, it was changes were offset by the introduction, I think, of an archive, you're saying? So, so, the, so the, black, the, black the, black, the Black Cultural Archives, you know, is a million pound project to that started off in Brixton yeah. before that working class black community started. Yeah. And they started it. They now have a space. They now, technically they don't own it. They, 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 they lease it. But, but it's there in Windrush Square, at the heart of Brixton. You have, you have the market and you have the village. And although they, I know I understand that some shop owners have obviously been served with, served with notices to, to leave, mm-hmm. up to that point there had been Organized, there had been organized, organized, there had been organizations and local people that had organized to say, actually, we're not happy at the speed of rent, and we want to make sure that these spaces and these shops still serve the BME working class communities that came here. And we're always, you know, selling plantains and, and yams, and, and and these things are, are, are held here so that we don't just come here and we just don't find spots for, you know, yummy mummies and the, you know, bankers and the people that are moving into to, to Brixton who have far more capital, and so. That for me was what was what I was what I took from Brixton, an area that does have a slightly more radical tradition than maybe other spaces. Okay, so when when you when you look at some of the newer residents of Brixton, let's stick stick to Brixton. I know you you yourself are from Tottenham, and that's hopefully something we'll we'll touch upon as the show show progresses. But when these younger people people of colour walk around Brixton, how do they feel uh, that they're received by some of the newer residents, who are obviously more affluent? They tend to be white. I mean, because it seems to me almost like they're not wanted there. I mean, that's a very harsh, but I think quite evident way of putting it. And while they'd be willing to tolerate an archive and the, like you said, which is, of course, an incredibly important resource for the community, and that's not to denigrate it, but while they're willing to tolerate the presence of an archive and the continuation of a historical narrative of what Brixton was, in fact, I'd say that's quite an important element of why they're there in the first place, right? Um, they're not willing to tolerate the continuation of people who don't look like them living beside them. I'll give you a great example. I remember during the immediate aftermath of the riots um, in Clapham, and there was um, a woman who'd obviously moved there relatively recently, home county's accent, maybe in her late 20s. And she was sitting down kind of outside in a cafe. And they were saying to her, well, you know, where, where were the, these rioters coming from? Did you know them? Did you recognize anybody? And she said, well, they, they came from over there. They came from over there. And she's kind of just loosely pointing to an estate, you know, which is obviously a huge concentration of you know, working class people very near her. They were from there as if it was a kind of, and this was actually a form of kind of apartheid, I think, in her mind. And it was quite evident from how she was talking that she didn't think those people deserved to be there, that they deserved to, li- the, the, they deserved to live next to her, and that they had no right to be angry about a very clear process of a dispossession, both 
both territorially but also culturally. They're literally being uh, wrenched away from places they may have lived for two, three, four generations. They may be being wrenched away from places who, where the only ancestors they've had who've lived in England have lived in these communities, be it Clapham or Brixton or uh, until more recently Notting Hill, which of course is far less of a West Indian community than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. So yeah, let's let's talk about it because it's, it's a harsh point to make. But sometimes it's, it it seems to me that for all of these you know very affluent white people, they just don't want working class people of color living next to them. Is it as simple as that? You'd have, you'd have, you'd have to ask you'd have to ask them. But how do these people you, you're talking to feel as a reporter? What's the sense that they gave you about that? Well, from a lot of the people that I speak to, mm. who have roots in those in areas that are gentrifying, mm. their frustrations largely come with the fact that they largely can't afford the private rents in their own areas. Yeah. So, they, so their family might their family might still live there, but they may not be able to you know, to move out to rent locally. So it's a generational cleavage as it's, well it's, it's that's a genera- coming it's, in here. It's a generational right. cleavage. And so there is, a, there is a deep frustration. I wouldn't say that there is a sense that they are being rejected by the new communities. It's just about their access to the space that does exist. Mm. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that those aren't the things that they've shared with me. What I've heard, what I've heard loudly... From from the residents of from residents of Lambeth who with roots in the area who feel it's become too expensive they feel priced out, is that it's just the notion that you can no longer afford to live in the area that you grew up in, mm. and that creates a hostility. But I guess the point that you made, or the point that the point that you made about the cleavage that does exist certainly between new influx of people that maybe have capital and there have been middle class people that I do know in Lambeth who have who aren't from the area but have been able to, you know, straight buy a property with the help of, you know, parents and, and trust funds and so forth. That cleavage is a very real thing and it's a very I don't know, it's a very particular thing to 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 cities that have large centres of, of finance and, and capital where, you know, workers that come to work in tech or come to work in finance, you know, they they move into the they move into these spaces. They have much larger disposable income than their areas. You know, we've seen examples in San Francisco and some extent now in Istanbul with the flood of capital there. And so, this kind of this kind of divide often gets taken out on what you can see. And so, talking now, moving on to slightly the conversation around hipsters. Mm-hmm. Now, hipsters arguably have become a kind of figure of ridicule, even though they're particularly now they're quite an ambiguous phenomenon in that. People can probably feel that they can recognise a hipster when you ask them to, to identify, you know, okay, break it down what a hipster is. Mm. Maybe there's a stride struggle. There, there have been some interesting writings of late around, I'm not sure, but you've seen about the book about the flat white economy mm-hmm. and things that we can to try to put it in a bit more of an economic context of, of what, what this category is. But, you know, going back to the point, you know, people can see, you know, they can see types of art galleries or... You know, they can see maybe serial cafes, and they can see all you know these kind of things that they embody that they relate to 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 hipsters, and therefore they often get the brunt of the criticism in a way that maybe the forces, the market forces, more responsible do not. But that doesn't mean then that there shouldn't be an accountability attached to the people occupying spaces amongst displacement simply because there should be an awareness of what has taken place in London mm. and I think a lot of people who maybe move into an area that was once predominantly working class but is now changing because of the way that capital is changing areas that lack of awareness is becoming arguably quite problematic if you 
certainly take into consideration some of the voices from a lot of these communities and how the frustrations and the and the sense of of, of resentment, but the lack of awareness perhaps from, from people moving to these areas about what is happening and people having to move and leave areas because rents have got too much mm. is is problematic in it is problematic in itself. And so I remember listening to this show a while back and it was a sense that okay a lot of the time some of the hips some of the people who would be categorized as hipsters who maybe take the brunt of things you know a lot of the time they're the ones paying the obsessive rents right. a lot of the time they're the ones living in you know ridiculous conditions in which there are, there's no living room or you know the conditions are quite poor and so in many ways there are people who are suffering from the, from the ridiculous state of the housing of the, of the housing market of the, of the housing crisis but at the same time the lack of awareness of the displacement is what people really take maybe offence to mm. in some cases. And I think, you know, it's in, it's interesting when you begin to ask questions, when you begin to ask questions, as I've done in the past, of, of people to ask them, so, you know, are you aware of what this area was? Are you aware of the kind of people who feel upset by displacement? Mm. And it's kind of like, well, why are you asking me? That's got nothing to do with me. And actually... Although you individually are not responsible for gentrification, it's the lack of awareness of, of how you relate to an area which is problematic and is, is cementing social cleavages. Mm, I mean, some listeners may be familiar with the the time when you went into the Serial Cafe. Was it Serial Killers? What's it called, this place? The, the Serial Cafe. Serial Cafe. With the these Serial Killers. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Serial <laughs> Serial Killers Cafe with these, these two Northern Irish guys, right? These twins. Um, I believe so, yes. And you put effectively that question to them, right? You were saying, well, look, you were selling um, Lucky Charm cornflakes with strawberry milk, whatever it was, I think it was something like that, right? Yeah. And you said, do you think that somebody who lives locally will be able to come here? Are you familiar with the history of the area? Are you familiar with the broader dynamics within which you're situated and within which this project is situated? Even if not intentional, I'm sure... He's not. In t- they're not intending to of course. get people out of the area. Of course. But there was this, I mean, there was A, an ignorance to that, quite clearly, wasn't there? And then at the same time, hostility that you pointed it out, uh, incredibly defensive, right? I mean, that was instantaneous because, you know, the, 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 the immediate reaction is, I'm not a nasty person. I, I would never dream of doing that. Well, of course, you're expediting precisely those dynamics. Is that quite a, a common thing that you've seen, particularly with, let's say... You know, younger middle-aged professionals starting their own businesses. When those border dynamics, which they're reproducing, are pointed out to them, they are hostile and defensive. I think. I think generally there is there is a hostility to people consideration considering maybe the way that they contribute to a force. And sometimes, you know, recognition does not always mean that you are accountable for something. It's just about being aware. It's mm. about having a level of of self of self awareness, mm. and so. And so some of the pe- some of the questions that I have asked people, you know, really do get people's backs up. And I recall I'm asking an, a a small business owner somewhere else in East London, you know, about you know about their clientele. I said, well, you know, do you feel do you feel that you're a gentrifying force in the area? And you know, to, to ask that kind of a question, you know, people would say, well, that's quite a provocative question, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, but you know, my, my job is to ask questions, really. So. I, I can't apologise for that, and and the horror on her on her face was 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 really a moment to behold, 
And then afterwards, you know, she she really went mad and said, how dare you ask me? How dare you paint me as this kind of horrible person? I said, no, I wasn't trying to paint you as a horrible person at all. It was just a question to ask you about what kind what what kind of impact do you think this trend is having on the area mm. and to what extent you're aware generally she answered the question fabulously anyways you know she said well I, i'm i feel like i'm i think i'm supporting people i employ local people and you know it's a, it's a very easy answer to to, to make mm. but it was just the sense that they didn't feel that it was it was a relevant question and mm. actually what these things maybe what they may do mm. is that they may cement social cleavages and divides within areas which are which are very small they're very highly concentrated but you have essentially people living completely separate lives with no awareness of maybe the way that their their that their that their neighbors and people live which ironically is what certainly politicians of all the major parties have been very highly critical of when people maybe slightly migrate from borders abroad as opposed mm. to internal borders mm. and so that that in itself has become is becoming, from what I've seen, from journalism that I've done, a growing trend in 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 London. I'd like to know what the trend of, of in terms of rents and displacement and gentrification is in cities outside of London. Is it particularly a London phenomenon? Are these things that we can see in, our, in other in other parts of the, of the country? Mm. The only thing is that increasingly it appears that you know you have a British economy that is slightly stagnant, apart from London. And a few other pockets. It's overwhelmingly stagnant, right? I mean, I think there's there's been zero private sector job creation for the rest of the country outside of London, which is an amazing statistic in itself. You're saying with regards to the the woman you interviewed, as well as the serial killer cafe owners, that there was a defensiveness. And I think maybe that's that's quite new in so much as if you'd asked these questions, say, ten years ago, if you'd say, um, look, do you think you're contributing to gentrification in the area? I think they would have said what does that even mean? I don't, I'm not even yeah, familiar may, with this yeah, maybe, word. Maybe. I mean, 10 years ago, yeah, right? yeah, not five maybe. years ago, 10 years ago. You know, A, I'm not familiar with this word. Oh, they would have laughed at you. They mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. And I think actually that defensiveness is the second stage almost in, in, in the recognition and perhaps even uh, the solution of how these dynamics are unfolding. Because this is quite new. I mean, we, James and I were talking on the show last week about changes that have happened with regards to public attitudes since 2010. And because these things take so long, take, take tax avoidance, right? You look at public attitudes towards tax avoidance 2009, they were dramatically, dramatically different to what they are today. And because you don't there's no big kind of moment where you go oh, look here you go this was it this was the moment it all changed it's very difficult to highlight and it's very difficult to draw attention yeah. to but i think maybe something similar is happening with gentrification yeah, I, I in think, terms of popular recognition I, of it as a phenomenon i think probably bloody to do with the you know to say that there is a housing crisis is not is not particularly radical i remember watching i believe david cameron did a live interview was it with buzzfeed and then i believe the the reporter said does London have is there a housing crisis? Mm. And it was almost like, it almost felt like a weighted question because everybody accepts that there is a housing crisis mm. and they affect the, the consequences of that is rising prices, but also rising rents mm. in particular areas. Now, that, that knockback now is you've almost seen now, you know, developers and, you know, landlord associations speaking in the same language a lot of the time as radical housing mm. activists mm. and so the the whole notion of gentrification becoming maybe a more common part of public discourse and and, and public lexicon is that is that it's almost like the next stage of the housing crisis is first of all 
the re- the reports were largely on you know people can't afford to buy houses. Then it was actually, do you know what? There's been a dramatic increase in pe- people pri- renting privately, particularly in places like London, and they're too expensive. Mm. Oh, and by the way, now because of the lack of local authority homes and you know, and the you know, in some cases maybe in central London the cuts to housing benefit, people have been you know driven fur- further afield, and then the notion talks of gentrification suddenly became became popularised. And also a lot of there've been a lot of really high profile campaigns, you know, most most notably, you know, E15 mums who first started off in, in Stratford now, I believe, then they moved supporting residents in Sweets Way. And so they really did capture popular attention. You know, they were on you know, they were on Channel 4 News, mm. you know, they were on Newsnight, mm. probably in The Guardian, possibly maybe even, you know, on newspapers on the right-hand side of the spectrum as well, maybe Telegraph as well. Mm. And so it just, I think, Maybe you think you're right. This is interesting to know that this is actually the next stage of of, of the crisis and gentrification becoming more popularly known. But the defensiveness to that of people who might be or might be now living in spaces where people have been displaced in cities, it's interesting to know them what 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 comes next. What do you think the role of the riots was with regards to at least the admission? That this was a problem. Now, clearly, policymakers, holders of public office, I mean, obviously, I mean, dark as hell, and very eminent people within the public sphere were explaining it, excusing it, agreeing with it. That was obviously not, I mean, I, I agree with much of it personally on a personal level. Whether it's politically advantageous, I don't think it is, but I can totally understand it and I can totally understand the anger which was behind it. But to what extent do you think holders of public office and policymakers thought, wow, this is actually a much larger phenomenon than we'd presumed, right? Because the assumption within these kinds of processes that, well, people will get by, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then they were realising, actually, the dynamics of the London housing market mean, wow, we're probably going to have to move in some areas from, I mean, of course, a lot... The initial trigger was racist policing and economic grievances which strike class and race. That's really key. But it did quickly tie into, I think, a broader... And again, this was definitely generational. And it wasn't just, again, you know, it's very very lazy, it's very convenient, it's very easy for the media to go, oh, this was young, even favourable media, right? This was young, angry people of colour. I mean, it wasn't. It was much wider than that, as the list of arrestees and Hackney makes very clear. I mean, I remember saying in Tottenham, it was much, much wider than just that. That was a very simple side of the story. But at the same time, it's clear that for a generation of the people you're talking about who were simply unable to not just buy somewhere, but rent somewhere within several miles of where they'd maybe been brought up, where their kinship networks were, where their friendship networks were, that was clearly a major, a major factor uh, within the participation for many uh, during the 2011 riots. So what role did that play, do you think, in terms of catalyzing a, a serious conversation about gentrification? Because it definitely didn't happen until after 2011, did it? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not entirely. I'm not entirely sure. I think um, obviously I worked on reading the rights, which was the Guardian LSE combination looking to the rights. It didn't really focus too much on gentrification. In obviously the narrative was always like you said around policing that did come out in the research. Yeah. If the riots did did anything in areas like you know Peckham or Somerset and Brixton. In, in, in Hackney and things like that. Mm. It kind of made some communities actually aware of who was actually living 
in this state across the road right. they never paid attention to right. before if anything yeah. it created greater awareness and one of the great, great anecdotes I remember from The Guardian was somebody being asked so somebody being asked to leave in, in Peckham or probably Camberwell which is an interesting area in itself because you do have million pound houses yeah. alongside million you know, pound garages you get million pound garages <laughs> and um, a man was um, I think he was coming from some kind of some kind of boutique he's coming up I think he had um, some, some some, maybe some new hams or some kind of cured meat or something and, and, yeah. and some bread and some olives and things like that like a deli kind uh, yeah, of place yeah deli yeah. kind of place sorry and then um, and said oh so what, what are you doing here he's like here I've come to buy some bread and he said what do you think about this he goes I don't, I don't know what's going on because that deli place sells delicious food I don't know why they're so angry and, yeah. he, and he, he looks absolutely shocked as similar to the anecdote that you mentioned you mentioned earlier so I think it created a greater awareness of maybe some of the social cleavages that existed in areas that people had no awareness of they were invisible these, they, these bodies were invisible basically possibly possibly somewhat yeah but um, in, term, in terms of actually a discussion on gentrification being had after the riots I don't think I don't think that happened what I think is what I what is maybe more interesting is that a lot of politicians and people who work in policy they also they always point to the trends that London may be becoming more like Paris which effectively is you know capital settles you know in the center and then forces people who have less further and further out until you have ghettos in the periphery and then concentrations of, of, of wealth on the inside. Mm. And, you know, people point to areas maybe that were once suburban, you know, for maybe aspiring lower, maybe the upper, maybe like lower middle class people, but, you know, they own, own their own homes mm. and, you know, they had a level of, if you want to use the word mobility or, or whatever, in play, living in places like, you know, Enfield, um, you know, Croydon and things like that and now that's slightly changing mm-hmm. slightly mm-hmm. and therefore you're having you know clear po- pockets of poverty and I remember certainly with the Tottenham riots a lot of people who participated came from Edmonton and Enfield in fact there were you know there were disturbances in, the, in those particular areas areas that conventionally people would not have associated with 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 with, with, with disturbances of that nature and so that that exa- that discussion on 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 displacement for me only happened when we said actually well then what is the structure of London going to be at this rate? Are we going to have regular disturbances in 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 suburban ghettos like there are in Paris? Mm. And I think that was the only time when I really saw that discussion take take place. And uh, when we I think certainly at the Guardian when I, when I was there at the time when we had the, what we called the community conversations and we had them in Croydon things like that these are the things that came up why how did the suburb become so poor mm-hmm. how did the suburb become 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 like this and actually some of the case, some examples of rioters certainly in places like like Croydon these are people that once lived in Lambeth mm-hmm. these are people that you know had roots in Brixton but then were moved. You know, them somehow moved down to, down to Croydon, and so that was a time when perhaps you could make that link. You could make you begin to make that link, and that conversation was had very subtly. But of course, the overwhelming narrative out of the riots that came out of various different types of research was around discontent with police accountability. Mm. Mm. Okay, so another another theme I think that we'd like to discuss today is this idea of digital media, social media, forms of online sociality substituting for what are generically viewed, not necessarily true of course, generically viewed as more 
um, authentic social relations offline. Yeah. So what's your what's your take on this? This thing like Twitter, Facebook, mask this kind of dislocation, this feeling of isolation, fragmentation socially. That's kind of uh, it's, analogous it's, with. It's, it's really interesting. I did a piece on. Um, a little while ago now about the privatization of public space and one of the things that people seem to take away from that piece was when I'm on I'm outside City Hall and I'm arguing with a security guard and I say why can't we film here and he goes this is private land mm. and that private land was actually owned by the government of Kuwait through private sub- subsidiaries and where was this? what building was this? this is City Hall yeah this is City Hall Boris's office so just round the corner from where we are now, and then it was about the privatisation. So that's sovereign. Let me get this straight. So that's what, so what is this? That's owned. That's private property owned by. So, so the land outside City Hall is yeah. owned by More London. Yeah. More London effectively is owned by the government of Kuwait. Like a sovereign wealth fund or something, one presumes. When I looked at the the land registry document, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the subsidiary subsidiary worked worked out exactly how many different subsidiaries there were but effectively it did say on the deeds of the land you know property of Kuwait that's amazing and okay. and so wow. it was about you know, public space that or space that you assume to be public mm. you know it's the land that is democratic you know outside the the beacon of democracy of of the, of the city and about the fact that actually a lot of it is carved up and a lot of times you don't know that it's private until you try and do something like, you know, Bradley Garrett said to me, until you try and make place. Mm. So you walk through Canary Wharf, you think it's fine, you try and take out maybe, you know, a blanket and, you know, and you know, set up a picnic, you might get moved along. Mm. That was his example. And so you take, you take out a relatively sized camera, you try and film something, somebody says you can't do that here. And so there has been notable bits of land that have been, you know, privatised, and at the same time, as land becomes more expensive physically, land or space, I should say, online becomes a lot more cheaper. It's more readily available. Our phones have more, more data than, than ever before and so forth. And so you see a lot of people taking to digital spaces in, in, great, in, in great volumes. They have most of their interactions there. And so it almost seems to offset the fact that, you know, actually we're living in properties with less space than they once than they once had, mm. and what the relationship between the, the maybe the physical displacement is with you know, finding a new space online, and actually perhaps without without that, perhaps there may there's an argument that there may be greater anger, mm. and so a lot of this lot of set of you know social media and you know the internet and how you know, these things are allowing people to take greater power back. But at the same time, actually, it offsets greater changes in actually the way that physical space is is, is distributed, and so that it was that kind of relationship which which I had a discussion about not too long ago, ironically enough, in Brixton, mm. where I was speaking to a lot of the people who had roots in the area, and it came up that you know, well, although we're we're it seems like we're we're moving further afield. But it seems that because we're moving, because we're moving more of our our places of, I don't know, our places of social of social meeting and discourse online. Sometimes it seems to offset it until you switch off your phone. And you're like, hang on, where's our space? Mm-hmm. And so it's the kind of it's the kind of almost digital space is almost 
it almost becomes a depoliticizing force in that sense. In so, that, you, so the skeptic in you would say that it's a way of mitigating quite aggressive that, that, dispossession. That, that was what came out of that conversation. Mm. That's, that's, what, that, that's what came out of that, of, of that conversation. The notion that physical that 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 that, that, that digital the digital space you know people seem to be taking setting up platforms and, and blogs and talking loudly and tweeting the guide and how they're not they're upset of their coverage or etc and all kind of things where it seems like it gives you you know greater voice and you feel more powerful mm-hmm. you feel like you have greater ownership you, mm-hmm. one of the things you hear about social media is that we have we have more voice we're more organized now we're more powerful whenever something takes place that was social media led wasn't mm-hmm. it you know it just it just seems like it's taking a lot of credit for a lot of the de- democratizing forces mm-hmm. when actually the same in the trend in physical life is actually maybe arguably the opposite and so it was almost like saying well actually let's halt the the march on physical on on on, on, on digital space and talk more about the ownership of public space mm-hmm. actually knowing that i can go i have somewhere to go on a friday that is going to play my music. I'm not going to be removed from this, this particular mm. building. Or knowing that, you know, I have a space that that, that, I, that I can go to and spend some time with some with, with some friends, which in many places is, is is being lost. And so, it was about it was about actually halting the conversation online and having it offline, and then saying, actually, have you noticed that a lot of uh, that a lot of our places. Of, of interaction offline no longer exists. Mm. And when listening to that kind of conversation, it begin it, it 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 suddenly then seems to ignite maybe a sense of activism mm. or it begins to it, it begins to ignite a sense of maybe action in a way that maybe that wasn't being had online. Mm. And so it, it was I th- I thought it was an interesting correlation to make. Mm. And um, certainly an area to be explored, the relationship between physical space and digital space. And, um, you know, the, the notion between, you know, connectivity, but actually real kind of community. And so, you know, social media is really overhyped mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as, a, as a democratizing force, almost to the point where we're actually, you can make the point to what extent is it your ally. Mm. That's, well, big, big area of my research, and uh, yeah, it's an open question, of course. But because this is an interesting point you're saying about the loss of offline spaces. I suppose one of the more um, frequently highlighted examples is with the grime scene in central London. Uh, who was it that did a piece on this for Noisy? Was it Wiley? I know Jamie did a piece on Jamie. Sorry, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. So yeah, Jamie did a piece for this on Noisy, right, where there was, it seemed, a, a conscious strategy by the Met and City of London Police to shut down grime events that were going on in Zones 1 and 2, which kind of reiterates, uh, repeats the pattern you're talking about, the potential kind of parasification of London and how these kinds of, not just, you know, in, inhabiting and living in spaces, outside of zones one and two means more of the kinds of people who'd lived historically in Lambeth and Hackney now living in Enfield and Croydon but even forms of sociality right it's just simply not allowed and this is massively striated again uh, along lines of class and in the case of London that often means race so that was a, a big example that we're talking about the loss of the grime scene are there any other examples I mean because I think of, for instance the Notting Hill Carnival 
I'm, Notting Hill Carnival was great fun, right? Of course. <laughs> but I remember the 2011 Notting Hill Carnival and how it was policed. And it was just... I mean, it was just bananas. It was just absolutely... And obviously, there'd been a decision made by the Home Office and the Met that that was what had to happen. And maybe if they hadn't done that, it would have worked out very differently. I mean, they have certain ends they have to achieve and objectives they have to achieve. And of course, that's that's why they exist. And I'm not going to say it's... They, they did what they you'd expect them to rationally, of course. But that really represented, for me, almost, it was kind of, you know, I was like, wow, Notting Hill here is like, kind of like a museum, almost, right? And you can't cross this little bit of red rope and touch the reality <laughs> of the situation, otherwise, you know, that would be too close yeah. to something authentic. And so, do you think that there's that, I mean, how, and, how, and also, how quick has this process happened? Because before the last election, I remember walking around Hackney, and people who say, were questioning New Labour's legacy and so on. Now, look, far from perfect, gentrification before 2010 was, you know, awful, etc., etc. had incredibly negative consequences for many, many, many people. But it seemed very different to the gentrification you now see in something like Vauxhall, right? Where it looks almost like part of, sort of Dubai or Beijing. <laughs> it's just a, a wholly different category of regeneration yeah. and development. Yeah. So, okay, so I'll, I'll condense that into two questions after rambling so much. How quickly have things changed for young people in terms of what they recognise as an absence of places to meet and socialise with one another? And has gentrification, regeneration, qualitatively changed in terms of how intensely it's being felt, how quickly it's being undertaken since, well, the crisis, but yeah, 2010, really? I'm not sure if I can comprehensively answer that question. I, I think it's a question that I'd actually like to know. But coming back to the point that I made beforehand... I think that the the land grab online has offset that that awareness, and the only times when we've when maybe we've met you know offline and had these conversations when suddenly people have been maybe suddenly aware, mm -hmm. so suddenly aware of these things. Talking about you know the crackdown on grime, I haven't actually seen. I saw the trailer for it; it, it looked top, but I don't know what happened. I'd somehow I didn't. Yeah, it's I, great. It's I, great I, video. I didn't, I didn't actually yeah. watch it. Yeah, yeah. Although I knew, I think I knew people who were interviewed for it. It is interesting because increasingly there have been a lot of conversations as to, you know, where people can go, you know, and just do the basics of shaking the leg to a little bit of old school R&B, a little bit of hip hop, you know, within within, within central London. Mm. And then suddenly people begin to start stuttering, actually, where we're not, we're not entirely sure. And, um, you know, there have been certainly there have been reports that I've dealt with of people trying to go to Mayfair and, you know, being turned away, you know, being turned away at the door. And so that that that. That that is actually an interesting point. How how far-reaching that is in in other spheres, not just grime, and not just and not just in in places where you know you've lost barber shops and you've lost you know hair shops and you've lost you know in many cases maybe public space in terms of youth centres and things like that. I'd, I'd actually be interested in looking at that. I mean, if you look, you know, Fabric, for instance, in Farringdon, right? And they, I'm not. Hey, did this happen in the end? They were talking about the cops were talking about shutting Fabric down because of obviously, I mean, drug. Of course, it's okay, a, it's a world famous nightclub. Of course, it has a massive drug <laughs> problem, right? I mean, it has for 20 years. It hasn't stopped them. Problem, quite unquote, I should say. Um, but this is interesting, right? Because one of the key points of Farringdon, and again, that has, like, in terms of its attendees, it's a cross-class yeah. thing, right? You have very working-class elements from, you know, around the corner of the kind of very well-heeled, well-off people from West London. And yet they were both losing the ability to associate in kind of very authentic ways yeah. in, in central London. So, I yeah, think, you know, a lot of... Thinking slightly wider afield, coming back to the point of, you know, loss loss of spaces i think maybe an example might be from a better example better examples or 
ones that are coming to mind anyway might be coming from certainly maybe LGBT communities and certainly music scenes. I think I saw a stat that was reported in like a mainstream newspaper that said that music venues, I believe, within Soho, I think maybe almost 20% had 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 closed within within a year, mm. largely to do with the increase in, in rents. Mm-hmm. You know, Madame Jojo's, which is quite a famous venue, you know, has, has closed its doors. I believe there has been a campaign to save Joiner's Arms a little further afield in, in Hackney, which is, um, I believe, uh, I believe is it an LGBT pub or yeah. an LGBT pub, which is a part part of their community. And Soho does has always been a a home of LGBT communities away from you know rampant homophobia in in parts of London. And so, actually, places that have given people safety, but has also enabled them to flourish and to develop their art scenes. These are actually suffering, mm-hmm. and these are actually cultural hallmarks of of cities of a city that people love to celebrate for its diversity. Mm-hmm. And being able to being able to look at at their demise does does raise does does raise you know real real questions as to how you know displacement harms you know the long term value of 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 a, of a city in in, in 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 other ways. But um, and those and those probably would be examples. Of where displacement of gentr- where displacement has happened from gentrification, and why, when I look at Brixton, I I see it f- through slightly different eyes because I I've seen I've seen things that have tried to prevent the same pace mm-hmm. of displacement that have taken place in in, in other areas, mm-hmm. and so that was why I raised it at the beginning of of the show. Although some people probably be like Brixton, that area is gone, man. What's he talking about? Mm. But and it's looking at me parts of Soho. Why I would say actually, hang on, there is, there there is a, there is a difference here. There is a difference here between different forms of gentrification. You even spoke about parts of Vauxhall, mm. which unbelievable, is, right? which, which, which is which is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, which which really is incredible. I remember when um, because I I grew up in North London, yeah, and so obviously my main place was North London. So when I met people from like you know other parts of London, like, where are you from? And I'm from Southwark. I'm like Southwark. I thought Southwick was kind of like a, an affluent area. That was my, because yeah. I saw the identification and they actually brought me to Southwick and actually I saw Southwick yeah. and I was like, well, actually, you know, Southwick, you know, Southwick can be, has huge pockets of poverty. Mm. But then since I first saw that as a teenager to now in a space of 10 years, the change has been has been absolutely How old ridiculous. Are you? I'm 26. Don't mind me asking you right now. <laughs> no, I'll tell you why, because I've lived in London for 10 years, right? And... Um, yeah, of course, all this stuff was here before, but I think definitely something has. I mean, this is when I talk to sort of teenagers now; they kind of don't really get it because, of course, they don't because they were, you know, wholly unaware of the situation. But something dramatically different—you can smell it in London, right? And I think it, the the example of Soho is an interesting one because now with Crossrail, they're talking about basically going right through the heart of Soho. And the point of gentrification historically is to kind of recuperate this stuff, right? You get the coolest, the coolest elements, the the, the coolest, you know aspects of LGBT culture, black culture, minority culture. That's what capitalism does, right? And it's a nasty thing, but in a bizarre way, it protects them through recuperation and commodification. I'm not saying that's a good thing. But what you see now is actually, you know, they will... um, really, really smash somewhere like Soho and they'll be putting up giraffe cafes and foil cafes and pretz and eats. And gentrification at its most intelligent doesn't do that, right? I mean, the point is it takes working class, authentic working class culture and it turns into a, a commodity which it can then sell on, right, at, at a return. I mean, so it's a, it's an interesting kind, like I say, an interesting 
kind of uh, gentrification that you see, regeneration that you see, I think, again, specifically since the crisis. And the only model for it really was Canary Wharf. So unlike Hackney and Shoreditch and Hoxton and bits of South London, it wasn't about artists going somewhere first. It wasn't about fixed gear, yeah. bike mechanics and cafes. It was about state-led investment. They said, we're going to put this these transport networks here. We're going to, you know basically create a, a, something resembling a kind of enterprise zone that you get in China in um, in the Docklands and we're going to really encourage investment there. Something very, very similar is happening. I mean, another one, right, talking about Vauxhall, Elephant and Castle. I mean, I picked up some stuff. I used to live in Elephant and Castle. I picked up some stuff with a friend last night and we're driving around and going, whoa, you know, he hasn't been there for a couple of years. And it's the hay, you've got the Haygate estate, which has obviously been very close to where we are right now, right? About 10, 15 minute walk. Hey guys, it's been knocked down. Fifteen minute walk. It's been knocked down, and then next door to it already is like a kind of like pop up cafe, you know, already. And um, <laughs> you know, and it's and I, you know, five years ago, it was a it was a menacing place. <laughs> I liked it, you know, it was a menacing place to walk around. But now you've got kind of, you know, you've you've got sons and daughters of the Chinese Communist Party. You've got American. I mean, look, I'm not saying these people should feel unsafe walking yeah, around yeah, London, of course. of course, right? But it's such a dramatically quick change, which, which I think historically. In the case of, say, Islington, that same kind of gentrification took yeah. 20, 30 years. Let's say 20, yeah, 30 years, right? Whereas an elephant, it seems to have happened... Yeah, it really seems to have happened within five years, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, that, and, yeah. and that's a much more... Uh, and, that, and, that's, and, that's, and that's that is a... That's a, that's a different model yeah. of gentrification. And so, you know... And more the, explicitly violent, right? In terms of pushing people out anyway. In terms of displacement, in terms of displacement... I'm not entire. I'm not entirely well. I know bits of the the Haygate estate of the narratives and and the resistance to that. In terms of displacement, certain areas have just been just been. What's the word? It's been pretty impactful. You know, mm-hmm. hundreds of people have lost have lost homes. Mm-hmm. They've lost places to live. It hasn't been a kind of subtle subtlety. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been a slowly well rents are creeping up and then people right. having to move. Right. It's, it's been very overt. Yeah. And so that's a completely different model. I would argue to certainly parts maybe like. Brixton, and in terms of the way that the area might might look, possibly I could be wrong, but it it, it feels different, and it, and, it, and it looks different, and the pace of change is far quicker. And so, coming back to talking about maybe a slightly being able to differentiate between different models of gentrification, and therefore different ways in which there have been responses to it. Some areas in which they've said, "Hang on, let's not let the market dominate the way that this area looks and feels." And other areas where they just said, well, the market has to lead. If it comes to displacement, so be it. So right. be it. Mm. And so, okay, so we've got just over 10 minutes left. You listen to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one station. I'm Aaron Bastani. I'm joined by Channel 4's Simeon Brown. We're talking about gentrification and displacement. I suppose going back to that broader point of what's changed in the last 10 years and how quickly. And how I think the fundamental soul of London in the next 10 years, were it to change as much as the last 10 years, is really up for grabs. What's your view on... Look, let's take... I know you're a journalist and your job is to be objective and so on, but if you take somebody like yourself, you come from working-class community in Tottenham. You obviously know where your mates are going, where they've ended up, as do I, as does anybody, right? What's your view on... um, on where and where they go that'd be my first question your your contemporaries as you were growing up saying in further education what kinds of jobs what kinds of 
areas are they living in? What's the what kind of employment do they find themselves in? Are they disappointed? And do they and do they and do they situate those sentiments within a broader sort of political narrative that they think is shared with others, or do they tend to privatise it? I think there's there's a lot of privatisation to be honest with you. Yeah. I think it, it it varies. I think it it does vary. So people who have become young professionals, you know. For those, for those of them who maybe, for those are the one or two who didn't maybe go into a for you know a major, you know consultancy firm, I think they know that home ownership is pretty unlikely. Right, and this is the vast majority of your friends growing up. I would say the majority. Yeah, that's, well, it depends if you're talking about university. If you're talking about that's comprehensive form, school, yeah, further education. I'd say most of them, most of them, you know, home ownership is not. On the horizon. Right. The thing is, is that what is particular is that it, what I've noticed is that the large trend in migration into London and you know the increase in rents is largely to do with the fact that the from what I from what I've seen is that largely the, the economy in this country is so uneven, mm-hmm. and therefore you know if you if you have aspiration to work in particular jobs, you therefore have to move to London because mm-hmm. this is where yeah. the lion's share of the jobs are. So people move from various parts of the country. Because I was from London, largely the people, even if they were living on estates, you know, they had they had roots in London, which mm-hmm. means that effectively they live at home. So, you know, a lot, a lot of my friends, you know, still live at home with their families. Are you going to rent privately? Can't afford to rent privately, to be honest with you. It's, it's just way too expensive, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I, have, I have a home here. So they're in a they're in a strange they're in a strange place in which, in some ways, they have a lack of 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 advantage. In other ways, just by living in London and having a family home in London that might be bought by a right to buy, they have somewhere to live here if mm. they want to work and therefore you know, they can say they might not be able to buy here, they might have to mm. buy further afield. Mm. You know, some people have, you know, a lot of them have left London mm. and they might commute in. But they had, the, they had the privilege over somebody who maybe grew up in, I don't know, let me think of an example, you know, maybe talks there for maybe, you know, Part, part, parts of Wales or you know some, somewhere somewhere you know Blackpool or whatever where they have to move into mm-hmm. London mm-hmm. where you have no choice but to pay seven hundred pounds mm-hmm. you know to live in a room in a, in a, in a flat with no living room mm-hmm. you know so they actually have an advantage just by just by being just by living right. in London they by being born in London they have mm-hmm. an advantage whilst at the same time watching how the fact that they can't maybe afford to rent privately because it's too expensive and therefore having to live at home at age 26, mm-hmm. 27, mm-hmm. 28, 29, 30 but it's, um, you know, it's, um, I'm not sure who, in that case, if I was a working professional, who, I would, who I'd rather be, to be honest with you. Probably, I'd rather have the advantage of maybe having family roots in London Absolutely and having right. that option. I've always, I've always been uh, gutted that I wasn't brought up in London. Yeah, when you do the unpaid yeah. internships, et cetera, et cetera, it's very, very, very it's tough. So, yeah, so it's, um, it's one of the ones where, although my heritage was that I, you know, I was working class and my, my grandparents, you know, they were you know, peasants in Jamaica, literally peasants in Jamaica. It's a thing where, before, well, they're, 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 that was their heritage and, you know, they came here, they did jobs and, you know, they made life for themselves and things like that. So, mm. you know, they worked hard. Just by being born in London, even if I went to a comprehensive school, it does give you a proximity to opportunity in a way that it doesn't if you don't live in London. Uh, we've got, yeah, just over five minutes left. I want to ask a question about the future. So this applies to both the people that you settled with in further education, also the, the communities you've spoken to whilst, whilst working as a journalist professionally. I mean, how do, look, if you're, if you're looking at rents and they've gone up, 
50, 60% in the last five years, right? Or whatever, right? Uh, and you don't think it's possible to buy somewhere. And you're in, experiencing massive labor precarity. And socially, you're finding yourself increasingly dislocated from people who you like to associate with, right? That can be in the context of LGBT, uh, an LGBT lifestyle. It can be in the context of wanting to go to a grime party. It could be anything like say, shaking a leg, listening to R&B. That doesn't sound much fun. And how do people construct a future around that? Because when I think about myself, for instance, I think, look, if the last, I'm not a sceptic or I'm not a pessimist, brother. I'm not a pessimist by inclination. I'm actually a very optimistic person by inclination. But it's got to a point with me where I look at my, my life as a young adult and I say, well, look, if the next 10 years in London are like the last 10 years, there isn't actually a future for me in this city. This isn't a city for people like me. Simple as that, right? Well, but certainly some of, the, some of the, the trends that seem to come out of it that I've been reading in various different publications seem to be that with the current state of of the climate, the trend is that London simply won't retain a lot of its young population. It, 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 it's not it's not viable. It's not viable in terms of costs, in terms of maybe quality of life for people, particularly those that have a, have a level of education. And so, you know, a lot of people, especially a lot of people, you know, that I know that I've done journalism around. Long term, they didn't, they're not sure if they see their future in in this city. And if you, you know, yesterday I was watching the election debates at a friend's house. He had quite a few friends around, mm. and effectively there were 15 people in a in a very small bedroom, maybe the size slight, smaller than this room that we're in right now. Mm. And there was obviously no living room. The kitchen is a fraction inside this room, and so that that was his existence. And so, you know, if you have a little level of education. And you're, you know, familiar with the world, and you want a bit more. London, arguably, does not offer value for money in a way that other places <laughs> no, do. Right. Yeah, of course. So, and so the, the trend would only be people hemorrhaging out. And I've, I believe I, I read somewhere that people are going, you know, to alternative cities, maybe like Birmingham, which you know, once upon a time, people would not would not have done, or to Manchester. So, at the at the current at the current trend, it's difficult to see London as a city of the future. Mm. So it's hailed up as, you know, as one of the greatest cities in the world, but I'm not sure if it lives up to that reputation. Mm. And as somebody who, you know, is born in London, you know, does a lot of my journalism in London, you know, it's this place of, you know, brilliant stories, you know, it's a place, place of power and, 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 her- and power in terms of, you know, capital and, and, and heritage and things like that. Actually, its future is not one that looks particularly promising simply because it doesn't really offer a great opportunity, long-term opportunities or prospects for, 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 younger, for, for younger adults. Last question. Um, do you think, you know, you were here as a teenager, as a young man, as you grow older, do you think London's a less inspiring, less exciting place than it was five years ago? There are still, of course, look, London's a big place and there are interesting things that are taking place. So... It feel it, 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 when I think about what I just said, it does feel slightly disingenuous because you know there are pockets of of, of huge amounts of, of activity. Yeah. But if you look at the trend, it's difficult to know how long you can be in a city with such such poor value for money when you when there are alternatives. And so, I think there are possibilities here. But people now, whereas once upon a time London was the place to be, now it, now it is no longer affordable enough to be the only place. Mm. So people are looking at, at other spots, and so. I, I would I from looking at certain trends I would be amazed 
if actually the most interesting things that were, were, were being developed were happening in places outside London and happening in pockets can, 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 can completely that would completely surprise us. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a young man growing up, I was desperate to come to London. I didn't apply to Oxford or Cambridge because I wanted to come to this city, right? And I, I think now, you know, it's 10 years ago, right? And I think now that just simply wouldn't happen. I'd be going abroad because it's unavailable in so many ways, socially, in terms of how it's policed and in terms of how one can economically survive. Simeon Brown, thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> My name's Aaron Bassan. This is Navara FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.